Hello, and welcome to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, college professor, PhD student, and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or is associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my very own serious crime scale, with 1 being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. This episode is rated a 5, and before I jump into it, I want to remind you of the very first episode of Campus Crime Chronicles. Remember the Cleary Act that I covered in Chronicle 1? It's basically the basis of this whole entire podcast, but the act is named after Jean Cleary, who was brutally assaulted, raped, and murdered in her dorm room in 1986. It is a federal law officially passed in 1990 that mandates all college and universities to not only publicly report and disclose all crimes that occur on campus, but it also requires colleges to alert students of crimes that happen on or even near campus that could put students in potential danger or pose a possible threat in any way. So now that we have a refresher on that, This episode, Chronicle 10, is the story of how one college, Eastern Michigan University, or EMU for short, was given the largest fine in history at the time by the U.S. Department of Education in violation of the Cleary Act. In 2006, EMU, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan, not only violated the Cleary Act by not disclosing the true circumstances of 22-year-old Laura Dickinson's death, which potentially put thousands of students in danger, but the school officials blatantly lied about how she died in her dorm room on campus. For over two months, they not only let the public and university community, but also Laura's own parents believe a perfectly healthy 22-year-old nutrition major of all majors just happened to mysteriously pass away from natural causes. But months after her lifeless body was discovered in room 518 of Hill Hall, In complete and utter shock to everyone, police arrested a suspect for Laura's murder. They were treating it as a homicide investigation the whole time, all while immorally and illegally withholding information. This episode is titled, A Killing Kept Secret. So without further ado, let's get started. Laura began attending EMU in the fall of 2006, she had already obtained an associate's degree from Grand Rapids Community College. Then, after she graduated, she planned to continue her education and get a bachelor's degree in nutrition. 
Her family wanted her to stay close, and they discovered that Eastern Michigan University had a good nutrition program, so naturally, it was the perfect choice. In September of 2006, her parents, Bob and Deb Dickinson, drove her the two hours from their home in Hastings, Michigan, to Ypsilanti, which is a suburb of about 22,000 people located southwest of Detroit. When her parents dropped her off, they gave her some sage college advice. They told her to make lots of friends, to keep her door locked, and, of course, to call whenever she got lonely. She did just that and more. She even joined the crew team at EMU and spent nearly all her days with her teammates, working out with them in the mornings on the water and then hanging out with them, chilling and socializing at night. She had actually been with her teammates on Tuesday, December 12, 2006, at a team Christmas party where they had exchanged secret Santa gifts with one another. It was also finals week, so some people in Laura's dorm had already packed up and went home for the winter, while others were still cramming for exams and getting ready to leave as the semester was nearing an end. The night of the Christmas party, video surveillance at Hill Hall shows Laura arriving back to the dorm around 11.12 p.m. with a red and green holiday bag with a stuffed animal sticking out the top of it in tow. Back in her dorm room, before she went to sleep, Laura called her boyfriend Travis, who worked as an engineer back in Grand Rapids. But it would be the last time Laura ever used her phone on that Tuesday night, December 12th. The next day, Laura never showed up for final exams and her friends and family became increasingly worried. It wasn't like Laura to not answer the phone, yet all of their calls were going unanswered. This lasted for a few days of her friends and family calling and calling and calling, but to no avail, she never answered. By Friday, December 15th, 2006, three days later, Laura's dad ended up calling the campus housing department at EMU because of increasing intense concern and worry. They were so worried that Laura's boyfriend even decided to actually drive to EMU from Grand Rapids to see what was up. But it was ultimately a janitor who discovered Laura's lifeless body that day on Friday. The janitor went to check on room 518, Laura's room, because neighbors had complained of an odd odor coming from the room. When the janitor opened the door, she found Laura lying on the carpeted floor, a pillow covering her face. She was half naked from the waist down with traces of semen on her leg. But the truth is not the story that the school would tell. Instead, even though the janitor found a gruesome scene in Laura's dorm that day, campus police and the university itself would lead everyone to believe that it was simply an unfortunate death due to natural causes. WTF. According to ABC News, the university immediately made it clear that there was no foul play involved in Laura's death. They issued several public assurances telling the students of the university, as well as the rest of the public, that they were completely safe. But as they were outwardly making those comments and leading everyone to believe that her death was a freak accident of some sort, the university was conducting a secret internal homicide investigation. 
Apparently, police had three potential suspects, including Lara's boyfriend, Travis, but her boyfriend was quickly interviewed and cleared after her death. However, one suspect stayed close to police's radar because they discovered he had previously roamed through the campus dorms to steal electronics, like computers and TVs and items like that. That guy was 20-year-old Orange Taylor III, another EMU student. According to an article in the LA Times, the semen samples that police took from Laura's bed and her body matched Taylor's DNA, and surveillance cameras showed Taylor wandering into Hill Hall in the late hours of December 13th. Then, he was shown leaving the dorm 90 minutes later, carrying one of Laura's gift bags from the Christmas party. Again, WTF. Finally, on February 3rd, Two months after Laura had died, according to the LA Times, Taylor was arrested for Laura's murder and charged with open murder, larceny, home invasion, and two counts of sexual criminal conduct. Taylor immediately pleaded not guilty, but was held without bond. He was expected to go to trial later that fall in 2007, but let's put the pause button on that part of the story and let me continue with our timeline of what happened in the aftermath of the arrest, which left everyone completely dismayed and dumbfounded. How could they not know it was a murder investigation? How could the university keep this secret and hidden for over two months? Also, in case you weren't already pissed off enough at this whole situation, let me tell you something that'll really make you blow a gasket. That's how Laura's parents, and the general public for that matter, including all EMU students, found out about Laura's death. Through the news. Yeah, the police didn't even have the audacity to call Laura's parents. No, they just let them hear it through the news. Yeah, when Taylor was officially arrested and charged on February 3rd, 2007, which was 10 weeks after Laura had passed, after her parents had held her funeral, and after they laid their daughter to rest. 10 weeks. Bob Dickinson told ABC News, quote, For 10 weeks, we wondered how a healthy 22-year-old girl had died. Now we know that it wasn't just a fluky, odd accident. Something had definitely happened and they lied about it, end quote. For the record, I just can't imagine the agony and betrayal and just overall sadness that her family must have felt, yet also probably some slight relief in a way for some sort of a resolution, you know, but I just can't imagine all of the emotion that Lara's parents must have been feeling when they found out the truth that their daughter was murdered. And my heart just aches for them because it's one thing when a loved one dies. I mean, it's hard and sad, of course, and all of that, but to not truly know the circumstances of the death and then be lied to about the circumstances, I just can't imagine that type of pain and loss. But continuing with our story, about a month after the arrest was made, the Washington County Medical Examiner, Dr. Bader Casson, completed his report and an autopsy, and he affirmed that Laura's cause of death was probable asphyxiation. Remember, when the janitor found her, Laura had a pillow covering her face. However, according to the LA Times, quote, 
Some physical details that might have shown how she died were not present because of the body's advanced state of decomposition, according to court records, end quote. I'm thinking this report was likely referring to marks on her skin from the suspect or defensive wounds or something along those lines, but I couldn't find anything that confirmed specifically what types of physical details the medical examiner was actually talking about. So, as we all know in the true crime community, it's not uncommon for investigators, as well as school administrators in this case, to withhold certain types of information. In fact, a professor of legal ethics at New York University School of Law, Stephen Gillers, told the LA Times that there were legitimate reasons that police and administrators wouldn't comment on specific details of a case like this. However, he said, To lie to parents of the murder victim is basically a complete abandonment of every type of responsibility a university administration has. He said, quote, There's no reason for law enforcement to fear that keeping the parents informed will frustrate the ability to apprehend the perpetrator. This is not the theft of a computer. It's the death of a child, end quote. Although the school acted very immorally by lying to Lara's parents, The school did take proper measures in alerting the police immediately after Laura's body was discovered, according to ABC News. But EMU did not handle how they informed the student body correctly. In fact, them blatantly lying to the students and not warning them that they were in potential danger is more than an immoral act. It was actually very illegal, and they explicitly broke a federal law. They violated the Cleary Act, and that is something that both the U.S. Department of Education and the Board of Regents that governs EMU could not ignore. So, two different investigations ensued. Michigan Live reported that the Board of Regents hired the Butzel Long Law Firm to conduct a private investigation of the incident, which they announced would begin March 20, 2007. Then, the following day, on March 21st, 2007, the Department of Education announced they would conduct their own investigation as well. Upon completion of the first investigation, the one conducted by the law firm, they issued a 568-page report, which basically said the school officially violated the Cleary Act and had several shortcomings, to say the least. The report alleged that police and other university administrators either suspected or believed all along that it was a homicide and began investigating it as such without telling Laura's parents or students on campus. According to the report, some university officials were not aware that this was a criminal investigation and they unknowingly passed along false and inaccurate information. But... Others, according to the law firm's report, made a conscious decision to not warn the public or Laura's parents. University President John A. Fallon III claims he is one of those people who were completely unaware that Laura's death was a homicide. And according to the LA Times, Fallon repeatedly told the public and the media that university officials never suspected a crime, only that it was an unfortunate death. Another administrator, James Vick, vice president of student affairs, which is a position that oversees EMU's housing and campus police, told Dickinson's family there was no foul play. But the law firm's report alleged that Vick directed in, quote, damage control mode, 
end quote, and he instructed other university staff who worked with him to shred the initial police report. Wow, those are some strong, strong claims. But Vic, of course, denied such claims, and according to the LA Times, Vic's attorney said he agreed to take a polygraph, which showed he was telling the truth. Regardless of all this finger-pointing, though, the university was clearly in the wrong on so many levels, a simple fact that is undeniable, and students attending the university at the time were terrified. At a public meeting addressing the student body after Orange Taylor III was officially arrested, one student, Jacqueline Armstrong, expressed her legitimate concerns. She said, quote, I was specifically told I was not in danger, that we weren't in danger, and unless you guys already had a guy in custody, we were in danger. And the fact that he is being charged with criminal sexual assault Not only were our lives in danger, but we were in danger of many other things, end quote. In July 2007, the Department of Education completed its internal investigation and announced that Eastern Michigan University was cited for 13 different Cleary Act violations. Just to put it into perspective, a single violation as of 2021 could cost a university an upward of $59,000. In 2007, each violation cost a maximum of $27,500. So, 13 of them in 2007 cost EMU a whopping total of $357,000. That's more than my house is worth, FYI. And at the time, it was the largest fine ever given to a university in violation of the Cleary Act. Since then, both Baylor University in Waco, Texas and Penn State University have both surpassed this amount, but those are two different podcast episodes entirely. Hint, hint of some future episodes to look forward to. But moving on, in the final settlement in which the university still did not actually admit guilt, EMU agreed to pay $350,000, which was $7,000 less than the original proposed fine. Also, later in July 2007, after the Department of Education released its investigation report, the Board of Regents announced that it would take steps in correcting the actions of the university. Upon release of the report, Chairman of the Board of Regents, Tom Sidlick, denied that EMU engaged in a cover-up of Laura's death, but he did acknowledge that mistakes were definitely made on account of ignorance of the law, which should never be acceptable on any university campus, FYI. But, Sidlick said, quote, we've had a tragic death that made the university violate federal law, and that's pretty serious. We are going to take actions to make sure everyone knows the law, end quote. In following through with Sidlick's assurance, the Board of Regents fired the president of the university, John Fallon, who had repeatedly denied that any foul play had occurred, and they also reached a separation agreement with James Vick, vice president of student affairs who allegedly ordered the shredding of the document, as well as a separation agreement with another administrator, Cindy Hall, who was the director of EMU's public safety department. In the settlement, thankfully, the Department of Education said EMU now has procedures in place that, quote, should substantially improve EMU's ability to make timely warning determinations and issue campus-wide advisories as needed, end quote. 
The department also said EMU, quote, has taken significant corrective action and has made strides in curing the deficiencies that led to this finding, end quote. One of these changes, according to ABC News, was replacing traditional keys with swipe cards. Also, it is critical to point out that as a way to preempt any type of lawsuit from Laura's parents, Bob and Deb Dickinson, the university agreed to a settlement of $2.5 million nearly a year to the day of when their daughter passed. According to the Grand Rapids Press, Vice Chairman of the EMU Board of Regents, Roy Wilbanks, said the settlement was necessary to avoid putting Laura's family and EMU through public legal proceedings. Um, I think? Wilbanks said, quote, It's obviously just been a very difficult time for the Dickinson family and also for the university. The board feels this is a fair and equitable settlement. End quote. Now, let's circle back around to the trial for Orange Taylor III. When the first trial did finally get underway, yes, I said first trial because according to the reporting of David Jesse for the Ann Arbor News, Taylor's initial trial in October 2007 ended in a hung jury and the judge was forced to order a mistrial. While the majority of jurors voted to convict Taylor of murder, some weren't completely convinced of his guilt because he continues to deny the crime to this day. In that first trial, the Michigan Daily reported it took the jury three whole days of deliberation before they announced the deadlock. Taylor's next trial, though, began March 31, 2008. According to the reporting by Jillian Berman for the Michigan Daily, the prosecution's case was basically the same in both trials. The evidence was there, and prosecuting attorney Blaine Longsworth laid it all out on the table. He referred to Taylor's DNA found on Lara's leg, surveillance camera footage of Taylor entering and exiting Lara's dorm in Hill Hall, and a holiday bag of gifts found in Taylor's apartment, which the prosecution said was taken from Lara's room. Also, Taylor stuck around long enough after to find and take Lara's keys and lock her dorm room door behind him when he left. However, Taylor's defense argued that proving he was in Lara's room didn't mean he raped or killed her, just that he was there. Um, okay. They said Taylor was smoking marijuana with some friends that night, and he wandered into Lara's room looking for drugs. Then, when he entered her room, he found Lara in a, quote, compromising position, end quote. This apparently aroused Taylor, so he masturbated and ejaculated on her body, not knowing she was dead. What? No, seriously, Taylor's attorney even said, quote, Physical evidence doesn't mean you touch the person, end quote. So y'all are saying he's a major creeper, just not a rapist or a murderer. Um, okay, got it. Anyway, the second trial came to a conclusion on April 7th, 2008. It took the jury only about five hours this time instead of three days, and they found Taylor guilty of all charges, including first-degree felony murder, assault with intent to commit sexual penetration, home invasion, and larceny. His first-degree murder charge in Michigan, though, automatically came with a life sentence without parole. 
Taylor was 21 years old when he was officially sentenced, and at his sentencing, he apologized to his family and Laura's family for the emotional roller coaster he put them through. But he still maintained his innocence and stated, quote, I did not kill Miss Dickinson, end quote. According to the Kalamazoo Gazette, those were his only public remarks because he did not take the stand at either one of his trials. At his sentencing, he also said that he did some inappropriate things, but he said, quote, one thing I am not is a murderer, end quote. Laura's parents, Bob and Deb Dickinson, both wrote letters that the prosecuting attorney read aloud at Taylor's sentencing, and I want to conclude this episode with some of their sentiments in those letters. Deb Dickinson said she cries often because she misses her daughter and that her faith in God was a bit shaken after her daughter's death. She remembered Laura as a smiling, compassionate ray of sunshine, and she said she would miss the love, support, and encouragement Laura gave her family. Then Deb wrote, quote, you took away the gift God gave us, end quote. In Bob Dickinson's letter, he discussed Laura's aspirations in life and how now, because of Taylor, she could never accomplish what she truly wanted because he cut her life short. Bob's letter said, quote, you totally destroyed my family. You tore it limb from limb. Not only did you kill Laura, you killed a very big part of me, end quote. Okay, guys, that brings us to the end of Chronicle 10, but I sincerely hope you are enjoying my episodes. So if you are, please rate, review, and subscribe to Campus Crime Chronicles wherever you get your podcasts. It's what helps fans like you know that this podcast is out there. So until next time, bye y'all. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.